Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. Patti Arvielo, I am like in awe of you. I'm so thrilled you're here with me. Everybody, Patti Patti Arvielo has the number one Latino-owned mortgage, private mortgage company, New American Funding, and she is a super chingona leader. For those of you that don't speak Spanish, chingona is like kick-ass, kicks-butt woman that has just built an empire uh, from, from really very humble beginnings. And I'm just so proud of you, and I feel like you're one of our great leaders in this country, and I want to make sure everybody knows who you are because you're pretty fabulous. Oh, now I'm so completely humbled. You're, you are, you're one of my first professed mentors when I decided to come out from hiding, meeting that I was so head down at work for so many years. And my husband looked at me about 10 years ago and said, the world needs to know who you are. And sure. uh, and you were one of the first that I got to see that looked like me, sounded like me, was passionate like me. So you became one of my very, very, very first mentors and uh, so I'm so happy now to call you my friend because I tell I teach people that you don't need to know your mentors at first. <laughs> that relationship right. sometimes can take time. So. That's right. What I love about your story and why I think people like my story is because, you know, we're not we, we didn't have a linear path. Like, you know, when I you know, I remember when I did the event with Cheryl Sandberg, when Lean In came out and and I said to her, Cheryl, you went to Harvard and had three jobs and you're a billionaire. That's great for you. But the rest of us have had obstacle courses as, as lives. And you have certainly had an obstacle course as a life growing up. So can you tell us, let's go back to where you began and your mom and your dad and how you weren't so great in school and, you know, <laughs> all that, the real stuff. Because I think that makes people feel like they can do it if you could do it. Yes. Yes, I was front row at when you spoke with Cheryl Sandberg and you still didn't know who I was, but yeah. I would just find where you were and I would just go watch you speak. And obviously uh -huh. Cheryl's a huge mentor of mine too. I haven't met her yet, but no, you're right. You kind of nailed it. I think that I definitely haven't had the path that is, you know, told to us as little kids that this is the path you need to be on to be successful, Right. And I remember years ago, people would say Stanford and Harvard. And I'm like, I don't even know where those schools are. Like what? I don't even know. My short story is I think when I think about my life is that I found my true empowerment in being a Latina, like early on. And I didn't really predominantly grow up in a Latino area, but my mom was Mexican-American. She immigrated from Mexico and she was a housekeeper and she cleaned the kids' houses that I went to school with who were primarily white. And I kind of look like people say, what is, you don't look Mexican. Well, I'm like, okay, what does that look like? But I am Mexican and, but I look like, I guess, traditional white girl. So, um, but culturally I was very rooted as a Latina. I mean, my mom, we grew up in Tijuana. I was down there all the time. That was what I resonated with. And I'm the oldest of the grandchildren. So I was the first grandchild born in my family. Of, uh, my mother was one of five girls. My Nana was a single mom. My Nana was super chingona, super powerful. She raised these five girls all on her own by being a housekeeper at a commercial building. So I saw her, you know, as a source of strength, just because she was so rigid with how she was taking care of us. And I remember I was in the kitchen at my tia Laudra's house in Tijuana. And she says, tu me vas a comprar una casa. And I was like six. And when I thought about that, I'm thinking that was a little kid, but I still remember that day. I remember exactly where I was in my tia Laudra's house in Tijuana. By the way, so, let's, yeah. let's translate for the Americans. She's ah. like, you are going to buy me a house. Yes, that's what, tu me vas a comprar una casa. You are going to buy me a house. And I'm like, why would my nana be telling me this as I, as I think about my life? And I think it's just, she saw me very early on as a leader. And maybe it was because I was the firstborn and all my cousins, I was the boss of all of them. I have two siblings. I just had that inherent role to be the boss. And she also told me I was coda, which is cheap. And it was because I would never oh, live. Oh, yeah. 
frugal. It was because I would never lend the little money that I had to anybody, even as a young child. It's funny that I fell into finance. But anyhow, I think it's just resonating back to who I was as a person. And I'm, I think I was very strong willed and a go getter. I remember you saying that your mom, even though your mom was cleaning houses, she started like a little biz. It was a business. Yes. With another lady. Right. And that mm -hmm. that you always saw her as an entrepreneur instead of a cleaning lady. And I say that to a lot of I say, you know, you're not a, you're not a cleaning lady. You have a janitorial service. Yes. And that you had that vibe about your mom early on. Yes. Very early on. I, I would always tell everybody my mom owns her own company, a cleaning business. I never said my mom was a maid. I my whole life, because I think I live in this country, was raised in this country. I wasn't immigrated as a child. I saw her as an entrepreneur. Like she owned her own company and she could be home with us when we were out of school and she could dictate her hours and she could move around her cleaning jobs. And I saw that as tremendous freedom and where, you know, which you don't get in many countries. So I always tout the fact that that's why immigrants come to this country, because it's a fabulous place to be an entrepreneur. So I did. I always looked at her and respected her for what she did for our family because she was really the one using her money. Now, my dad kept his money and my mom had her cleaning money and she would be the one buying us the shoes and the clothes. And, I, you know, we never did without, you know, nice things. My mom provided us all what we wanted and what we desired by cleaning houses. So I saw her as like a badass cleaning, like a entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. But then she also, because I've heard her, be interviewed about you and she's like I didn't think you were going to become who you became because you were like a little bit all over the place when you were younger so what happened I think when I think back about how my my the narrative went about who I was going to become as a woman you know I think that I'm, I'm older I'm 58 and in my generation it was we were you know pretty lucky to be married to a good man, like go find a good guy and maybe get a job. So, you know, when I was young and I was looking around for jobs that I saw myself in, I saw myself as being a dental hygienist because every time I would go to my male dentist, all the women supporting him, you know, I thought, oh, I can at least be that. So that's why I think the whole, if you can see it, you can be it is so important, especially with this young generation seeing the Nelly Galans and the Patty Arviello's because you have to see yourself in a role that you can emulate. So of course I, you know, I wanted to be a dental hygienist and then I figured out they didn't make that much. Yeah, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Before that you were working in like a swap, swap meet. Yeah. You were doing like from the time you were like me, when you were 12 and 13, you were doing that kind you were hustling. Yes. Yes. I wanted my own selling. Money. Yeah. I wanted my own money. I wanted my own, what do you call it? Chips. I wanted yeah. my own chips from very early on because my parents didn't have, they didn't, you know, they didn't have any extra income that they would just give us. So I, I, you know, I had the desire to earn my own money. I desire, I had a very, at a very young age, I desired fine things in life. I tell this story because you know, I, I still want to provide for my family and my parents. I'm going to take care of everybody. And I remember when I was a little kid, my mom says, oh, mija, yo, oh, me encanta los Mercedes bands. And she would tell me, oh, honey, I love Mercedes bands. And so when I was young, like eight to 10, maybe I would look around and see these vans driving around. I'm like, oh, one day I'm going to buy my mom one of those. Well, you know, later on, I figured out that Mercedes Benz was a Mercedes Benz. Benz. And I did happen to buy, I bought her too now. I mean, I just desired to provide for my family. That's super uber Latina, right? In the old days, right. like, I knew I was going to be the matriarch and that I, I was going to be responsible for taking care of those that followed me. And so at a very young age, I'm like, oh, I'm going to buy my mom a Mercedes Benz. But, um, yeah, just that's just a. I think a lot of when I tell that story, a lot of Latinas will resonate with that because we have this desire to provide for our moms. Like I still at call my mom two to three times a day. Um, yeah, know, I do too. I get it. You know, I've done, I've had the same life, so I totally relate that we feel like they've they have sacrificed so much for us that we want to give them back. Yes, yeah, hundred percent. I feel like I am the reason my Nana and my mom and her siblings, um, it's like I'm paying them back for their pain because they had a lot of 
pain, immigrant pain out of, you know, single mom of five girls and being abandoned. They didn't have food. So I feel, and I know those stories and I live those stories. So I feel just this inherent need to make their life so much better than what it was when they grew up because they provided me this wonderful life as I grew up in this country. So there's that need of wanting to do for the family. Okay. So how do we get on the track to end up being in, in the finance world and in the mortgage world, which by the way, I talk about all the time because I think it's the most important uh, trajectory of anyone's life is when they get their first loan. So we'll talk about that. But how did you go into that trajectory when you thought you were going to be a dental hygienist possible? <laughs> because I was super money hungry and I figured if I'm going to go to work, I'm going to find a job and pay me the most money I can make at 16 years old. So back then we didn't have the internet, you know, so it was a Sunday paper and people would post job openings. And I found a job at TransUnion Credit. So when you're 16, you know, I have no idea what TransUnion Credit Corporation did. They're a credit repository. They are the ones who report our credit to the credit card companies and whatever. So, but they were going to pay me like $6 an hour to be a data input clerk. Well, I was lucky enough in high school, I aced typing. Very few classes I got A's in, but I was a very fast typer. So, you know, I, I, I got this entry level job. I worked six to 10 and every day after school, six to 10 at night and on Saturdays, six to 10 a.m. So I went went to work every Saturday and, you know, it's pretty good money for a 16 year old. And my mom would drive me to my job because I didn't have a car yet. And um, but the but the mortgage industry thing kind of happened this way. These women would call in to order these credit reports that I was data inputting. And I, I asked them, so why do you even need these reports? They're like, oh, because we process mortgage loans. I'm like, what's a mortgage loan? They're like, well, you need a mortgage loan to finance buying a house. I said, oh, I said, well, how much money do you make an hour? <laughs> and it was more than what I was making an hour. So I went back to the Sunday paper a couple of years later, and I found an entry level job at a loan company. So they wow. It was just chasing the almighty dollar. Like I wanted to make more, the above average earnings. Like I always was my biggest advocate. And when you when you went to that entry level job, did they have a prerequisite that you had to have a college degree or anything like that or not? No, I think they saw, Rick, Rick and I coined this phrase, they saw my will and not my skill. Otherwise, <laughs> they probably would not have hired me. I was very hungry. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I think I demonstrate that still today. I have a lot of energy and a lot of will and they took a chance on me. And it, at the at the beginning it was part time and then it kind of rolled into uh, full time. But, you know, I was 18. And what I did mean, you and what did that job entail exactly? Like clerical work or typing. And, you know, this was before computers. So it was all regular typewriters. And at this time, if you made a, a, an error on this particular form, you could not take white out or erase it. I had to start over again. So I had to type these forms with 100% accuracy. And so when you did that, did you by osmosis start learning what a mortgage was and all that kind of stuff? Yes, it was my environment that I learned, right? So my entire career has been cre accredited to me making a lot of mistakes, like messing everything up and me looking upwards to people that I that I saw that I felt like I could emulate. And in my early on career, it was all men. It was like all men. I didn't see females working in the mortgage industry. I was lucky enough to have found myself with some pretty encouraging men. And I just started to emulate them. And I started to figure out what a mortgage was, what paperwork was needed. But I think what my biggest win was is that I found my passion early on. I found my passion very early on when I figured out that closing all this paperwork and closing this transaction, I was handing over the keys to creating the, the American dream. I was like handing over keys to people who were like moving into their first homes. And I was Oh my gosh, so excited. And I could look at the appraisal and see what their pictures of the houses look like. It was like the storybook I was creating for them to create their dream of home ownership. So I, I just got very excited in the whole narrative around providing home ownership at a young age. So that passion just, you know, I was lucky to find it young. Wow. And at that point in your life, because I know you've said, even with all of that, you were kind of reticent about being an entrepreneur. You still wanted to work for somebody, right? Yes. And what happened to you that changed your mind about all of it? 
Um, well, I, I stumbled around in my 20s like most people do. But, you know, people say that's the wasted decade. I think it's one of the most important decades of your life. Like, make your mistakes early on. Like, that's how you learn. So my 20s were filled with them. I married the wrong man. I had, well, I love that I had two kids in my early 20s now. But, you know, I had two kids and then I became a single mom. And, you know, all this time I worked for the paycheck, for the paycheck, for the security, for the paycheck. And who's going to pay me more on a paycheck? And, uh, you know, confined hours. You got to be here at 8.15 and 5.15. And I was a single mom. I was like, what? So um, I met these two gentlemen in a bar. They were little kids. <laughs> And I told them what I did. And they're like, well, come work for us. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And, and they said, well, you know, we do mortgage loans and you could process them for me. And I'm like, oh, I'm well above a processor. I mean, at that point, I was an assistant vice president at Countrywide. But they were able to give me my freedom to be a single mom. And that is something that Countrywide didn't do. So access to a flexible work schedule that I hear a lot of women talk about now and the importance of that for a large percentage of the population, I felt it and I lived it, but it pushed me into being an entrepreneur. So okay, but let, before we get there, let me ask a question because I'm realizing maybe the people listening don't understand when you're moving up the ladder in mortgages, is your strength selling at this point and closing mortgages or are these things that like the company that you work for has access to real estate agents and so they feed into you how does that whole thing work no I was a hunter early on 19 years old somebody handed me a box of cards and said go meet realtors and ask them for loans so I I was I I always have been a hunter so I went out and drummed up my own business I had my own relationships with several realtors and you know I was a top producer at Countrywide at a very young age with two babies so um no that definitely you hunt for the leads to to fund the mortgage loans but the my my gift was is that I started so young that I knew the operational piece too. So I knew how to manufacture a loan and sell it. And I was only 25. That was very, very rare. Very and in that period of your life, did you go through any bad periods like now where their loans are so high? So was it an up and down thing or was it those years were like kind of going up years? No, I started selling loans when they were 13% and I would have to charge the borrower a point. No. So it was even yes. worse than now. So we don't yes. even know. No, I tell everybody now this is a gift. These interest rates are still a gift. You go to any other country, you're not getting six and a half percent fixed rate for a mortgage. No, 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 no. The rates here are still phenomenal. They're not as good as they were a year and a half ago, but they're still phenomenal. Yes. No, I was sold loans at every single climate, every single interest rate environment. I have closed loans. I've never not once in my in my career not closed a loan in a single month. So maybe it might be a hundred, maybe it was only one, but I don't think I've ever had a month where I wasn't closing loans. Wow. Okay. So then you meet these two guys in the bar, they tell you to go work for them. And then what happens? Oh, uh, I did. So I left my, this, the risk taking, right? This is Oof. a risk. And people ask me this all the time. They might be getting this really a tremendous paycheck. I mean, at that time I was making close to half a million dollars in the 90s. What, already? Yes, and I was in my late 20s and I left that that paycheck. Wait, that so, but I want people to hear that, that you could not, you don't have to do a linear path of going to college, doing all these things. You could get on the ground floor and it's like me being employee one of Telemundo and if you're smart and you hustle, you can rise. And there's always time later, if you, like me, that I went back to school later because I felt like it. But I don't want I want people to hear that it's kind of a BS thing to tell people that there is a only one path to success because there isn't. No, I think the greatest stories are the type of paths we're forging for the ones that are coming behind us. It's just that we're really the first generation of women to carve these roads out for them, right? The one, the women to be seen, you know, women in the fifties, they were barely recognized as employees. And if they were, you know, it was menial tasks. They were never even allowed to rise. Even they, if they were as smart as a doctor, they were still going to be the nurse. Right. See, right. we're, doc we're doctors now. We're doctors. We're That's doctors. right. I love that. <laughs> okay, so tell me what happens with the two guys. I took a risk on it because I needed the freedom to raise my two children. I had to have a flexible schedule. So long story short, that was just the hiccup, right? That's the non-traditional who meets a couple of guys in a bar and decides 
to go work for them when I had such a golden you know, paycheck coming in the door, secure job with the number one mortgage company in the United States of America. But had I not left, I would not be where I am today. I would, I'd probably be still working at like Bank of America or Wells Fargo or Chase. I would have stayed with the big banks as a comfortable, you know, like, what do we call it? Like a blankie, you know, like that oh. comfort level of the paycheck. So then I stumbled on and I met the love of my life, um, Young, like 31, I was set up on a blind date by a client of mine. See, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. I'm really actually a big advocate of, of blind dates from friends. We know, right? And the funny thing was, is I met him and I'm like, yeah, he's really nice. Why don't you date him? Like it wasn't even love at first sight. And I like had this amazing love story, but that love story took a long and what time. Was he, what was he doing at that time? He actually owned his own company and, 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 you know, he was, he was really well off and I had never dated a guy that actually did better than I did financially. So I was a little insecure to be maybe but even wasn't it wasn't he more in a technology company? No, not yet. He was he actually at 34, he sold his first company. So what Rick did was, do you remember back in the days where you could buy checks with like cats and dogs on them when we wrote yeah. checks? Rebills. Well, yeah. he he owned that company. He owned the biggest affinity check company in the United States of America. So they would print Lucy checks and football player teams. And, you know, we ordered them in the Sunday paper and we would order our boxes. So he owned that company and then sold it um, at 34 years old for a decent amount of money. So I thought for the first time, I actually had somebody who could, you know, maybe take care of me, which was like a whole, whoo. You and know. you had two kids. Yeah. So I was kind of nice to be with an equal or somebody above my pay grade. But uh, anyhow, what he did for me was not take care of me. What he did for me was inspire me and uplift me because he saw me as somebody very talented. And after he sold his company, I'll tell you really short, he put all his money in tech stocks and he was rising in wealth. And then one beautiful day, it all went away. So Rick actually lost all of his wealth in a matter of days. And my rich boyfriend now became my probably less than me in income, but I didn't care. Like I didn't. So he had never had a job because he's been an entrepreneur his whole life. And I invited him into the mortgage business. I said, why don't you come to work with me? You'll love the mortgage business. You are so smart. So he started to come to the office with me and he is that smart. He's a visionary. So he saw very early on, oh my gosh, how much money do you guys make for one transaction? I mean, his profit margins were like a buck a box of you know, a dollar for a margin, like profit on one box of checks. And when he saw what we were making, that ding, ding, ding. Um, but I was still getting the paycheck because he came to work for a company. I was actually working for those two guys in the bar still. So I was working for them. So Rick came in as like a consultant. And then those kids, because they were kids, decided that mortgage was not their passion. And so they left and we bought that company from them. So that wow. is how we, we but I remember you said you said to me, because we talked about this a long time ago, that he really wanted you to invest the money and buy it. And you were still on the fence and scared. Yeah. yeah I and didn't so, want to my own money. Yeah. I don't want to lose the money I have. That's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and rightfully so. Cause you're, a, you're at that point, you're a mom and yes. you're thinking to yourself, I'm my kids, everything. And you don't know if it's going to work out or not, but you, you guys finally decided to go into it. Yes. But he still promised me a paycheck every month. <laughs> because remember, we were boyfriend and girlfriend for nine years while we while we built this company. Oh, I we didn't did know not that. get married. He did not propose until our ninth year together. What? Yeah. So we ran and built this company, which is now one of the country's biggest as boyfriend and girlfriend. And actually I negotiated marriage in a weird way because it was kind of made me feel disrespectful when the bankers would come to meet with us and they would just assume I was his girlfriend that he was taking care of. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. I got him into the mortgage business. Like, you know, so I thought it felt like I felt like I was being disrespected. And I and uh so we decided I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Where right? I, I'm I'm dating guys, they go to my house and they go, they they think that he owns the house. And he's taking care of me. And I'm like, no, it's my house. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, and it, it kind of throws me over the edge. So, but wasn't it very difficult to work with your boyfriend? No, not, not, 
not in our relationship, because I think Rick and I respect each other more than we love each other. Oh, I love that. And I think, by the way, I think that's the key to love. Yeah, love is fluid. I love- Because I think that if you don't respect somebody, you fall out of love with them. Yes. So I know sometimes people cringe when I say, I respect him way more than I love him. No, I don't cringe at all. (laughs) Because I think that that is the foundation of love, for me at least, for me. I think that's correct. Especially, and I think it's twofold with, with men, with women as well, especially women who are career minded. We want that respect. And so I have it and um, we both have mutual respect for each other. So, and the great synergistic fit from this one client who set us up was that we're probably the most, one of the greatest stories in mortgage because we were set up on a blind date. We created this amazing company together and what we realized, or maybe she realizes his strengths were not my strengths. And I was going to say, we're not his. Yeah. So we you're don't a good match. You're him. a good match. A hundred percent. The best merger ever in mortgage. So <laughs> how do you, what do you think is the split? What do you, what does he do? And what do you do in, in the company? I see. Well, I'm the woo. I'm like the win, win others over. Like I'm the ultimate salespeople. I'm the sales leader and Rick handles, he's the visionary he actually builds the structure of the company and um, he runs 100% of the finances. And the tech, right? And the back of oh, yeah. tech. Anything that's super uber complicated, Rick runs legal, uh, money, all of that r- r- rides up to Rick. The only thing that funnels up to me is operations and sales. So when in, in doing and in, in putting this together, I don't think people realize the, the breadth and depth of your company. How many... Uh, offices do you have? How many sub, I mean, you have a lot of employees, a lot of offices, explain to everybody so they know how it all works. Yeah. So out of the, in the country, there's, you know, the top independent mortgage bankers, which are not like Chase and Wells Fargo. Those are banks. We're not banks. We don't take deposits. All we strictly do is originate mortgage loans and sell them into the secondary market. So out of the, our competitors, we are the top 10 largest retail lender in America. Um, We have close to 4,000 employees. Um, It's down because interest rates are high. We were up over 5,000. We have 200 branches across the country. Um, I have, I service my own loans. So when you write your check for your mortgage payment, I collect it and service it. And I run a servicing center out of Austin, Texas. Um, Yeah, we have three major call centers across the country in the Carolinas, Arizona, Texas, and California. Oh, that's cool. And you've had the company, as I recall, for 20 years, right? Yeah. This is our 20th year this year, our 20th anniversary. And so you created an unbelievable cash flow business. But since I know you're grounded in real estate, and since we talk a lot about building wealth, I know that you guys have diversified that money into other things. So for you, uh, with what you've done, what are the other asset classes that have interested you in terms of investment? Well, we're obviously very heavy in residential real estate and we're very heavy in commercial real estate. Um, We actually have it, we own a tech company as well. Um, We just sold uh, about 40% of the tech company closed this year. So, we have escrow and title companies we own. We're big investors in, in major corporations and in, in companies across America. I'm an angel investor in mostly Latinx or Latina founded companies. Um, but yeah, heavy real estate, heavy, heavy tell, real estate. Tell and not one penny in the of- stock market. Not one penny. Me either. <laughs> I can't handle the ups and downs. I'm in mortgage. And I think we should talk about your Latino investment because I think it's a beautiful one and let's promote it. Uh, I think it's beautiful. I, it's a, it's a, an event that I have gone to many times and it's beautiful. Hold on. Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. So um, during the pandemic, I had followed a, a social media brand called We All Grow Latina. They're pretty big on Instagram. And I fell in love with the entire platform because it's very entrepreneurial, engaging, meaning they just the content really resonated with me. Well, during the pandemic, the founder went on and did a video that she was going to have to shut the company down 
because she made most of her income through events. And obviously the you know pandemic took her event away. And not only that, she had pre-sold the tickets and had to pay all the money back with very little capital. So I messaged her on Instagram, not knowing her. I kind of knew of her, but I didn't really know her. And I said, call me tomorrow. So she did. She called me and uh, we negotiated a buy. I was going to buy 100% of the company, but that's not what I want to do. I want to empower women to own their own companies and build their own wealth. So I called her. I said, you know, instead of me buying 100% of the company, why don't I buy 50% of the company and give you enough capital to get through the pandemic and we'll be partners? That way, then you can still create wealth for yourself. So we became partners now and we've been partners for a few years. We brought in a small minority partner, Vanessa, as well, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, again, we have had our struggles, but um, I, you know, we're doing we're doing fantastic. She's a great founder. I really respect her. Um, I've also, you know, invested in a company called Evo Avo. And Evo Avo is a big brand and they sell it a lot in Walmart, especially on the East Coast, Miami, Florida. And it's called Carson Life. So mostly Latinx women who struggle gaining capital to kind of grow their companies. I come in and I offer them capital and I take small percentage of the company or shares in the company. And I do it at a very favorable rate because I want to be fair so that they can grow their businesses and they can get rich. So that's what really excites me. I so love that. And I think I, I just want to honor that, you know, I also think that one of the things that you've done really well is that. You've created an incredible, as you already said, incredible team in that you're doing this with your husband, who was your boyfriend, is now your husband. <laughs> and that you're and and I give you a lot of credit because one of the things I talk about, Patty, I think it's very important for women to also hear our screw-ups. And you're very honest about your screw-ups and my and mine. I think that I was one of those women that was so driven to success and I was in the right place at the right time in my industry that I let a lot of my personal life fall through the cracks. Mm. And I also think that because of my extreme, uh, maybe I was precocious and I got to where I was going so quickly, but I was immature personally. So, uh, but you know, I think with you, you had your two kids in your twenties. Had I done that, I would have chosen better along the way because then you want a good guy for your kids. And I think I had a kid later in life. And I think so. So I, I really honor that you didn't let your personal life go, because I think it's 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 not easy for me to be single at this time in my life. And I still have that part of my life to figure out. A lot of women come to me and they go, you are so smart. You figure I go, no, I didn't figure all of it out. I did some things really well and some things really poorly. And you are a sum of all your decisions. And you, I feel like I'm, I'm so obsessed with you because I think you've made very good decisions to tell you the truth. And, and so I give credit it, it to my first up. husband. I give credit to my first husband. I actually thanked him for leaving me. And my first husband works with me as well and mm -hmm. has for 12 years. So no, have, yes, my ex-husband works at New American Funding and I co-own it with my current husband. But what my first husband taught me was that you do have to put in the work. And when I was young and I married him, I thought the piece of paper was the commitment. Like, you know, oh, just because we're married, I can, you know, not pour into you and not uh, pay attention to you. And I, you know, I was working 16 hours a day and I was super money hungry and he desired my attention. I remember early on, he's like, you know, I want this or I want this for you and I. And I just, I was all about building this business and the money. Well, I didn't make that same mistake again. I pour myself into Rick every single day. Like every single day, I nurture that relationship. Yesterday was his birthday. So I cleared my whole calendar and I just planned things he likes to do like golf. And I'm not even good at golf, but, and we went and worked out. Like it's all about what he wants, not what I want. So um, yeah, but it's because my first husband left me and I'm like, I'm never going to be left again. I'm going to earn my right as this woman that meant someone wants around. So I do work on my my marriage quite a bit. I do. And I still try to improve as a, as a wife and as a mother still, you know, it's not like I was born any certain way, but I do make a lot, a lot of mistakes. I just don't make them twice. I love that. That's so beautiful. So Patty, you know that I've been encouraging you to write a book because I feel <laughs> like in our community, we don't honor our heroes in our community 
that are building businesses and doing great things. And I don't know why that is. We don't do it, but that's why I'm obsessed about doing it because I agree with you. No, how can people be something if they don't see it? But what else is in your dream box of what you want to do? You've done so much. You've built unbelievable wealth. You have a great husband. You have great kids. What's What else do you want to do? I want to empower the next generation of Latinas to create their own wealth, to, to, to not think of their unconventional path as anything but great. You know, I didn't even go to college and uh, I got horrible grades in high school, as you saw my mom tell the whole world. But um, so I was kind of categorized myself and labeled myself as dumb. And I remember a gentleman told me, you're not dumb. You, you have an MBA in life. And now I sit on the board of Harvard. I didn't even graduate college. I have my own business school named after me. But I'm using these channels and these seats at these wonderful tables to empower the Latinas that are that have much more fortune or maybe are like going to Harvard. Right. And I tell them all, you're so far ahead of where I was. Like, you don't understand the leg up you have that what that from what I had. So I just give them a, a view into my life and access to me so that they can say, did this happen to you? You know, it. I felt lonely growing my company and I didn't have anybody I could talk to that I could trust. So I had to figure it out. I had, that's why I make so many mistakes. And most of my allies or peers in my business that I respect and are very close to me, 100% of them are male. Like I made these male friends that I'd be like, you know, did this happen to you? You know, did you get a buyback? How did you handle this financial situation in the mortgage industry? It was all men. So I just want to make sure that I mentor the next generation looking up and that we are seen. And I agree with you. We are the silent majority in this country. So our voices are not heard and we are not seen even in the media. So I do commend you for you are very well respected as far as I said. I mean, everybody knows who you are. You are like our famous person. <laughs> and and I hope that you continue to have the stage you do in the in the and the you know, as much as everyone admires you and that people give you channels for your voice to be heard because that is what's lacking is we don't have that those advocates speaking on our behalf that is being picked up by the wall street journals and the bloombergs and the media is telling our stories so i hope that if i'm able to write this book that it gets picked up because there, it is content rich i mean we make up almost 20 percent of the population yet there's very very little coming from our segment of the market on our journeys well, it's already done. Your book is going to come out. But listen, I'm going to switch gears for a minute because I can't have you with all your expertise here and not ask you real estate questions. Yeah. So let's switch for a minute because I think everyone in the country is paranoid because of these interest rates, which I'm very happy to hear you say it's not that bad. But we know that the market has slowed down in terms of selling real estate. And so tell us like, what, what do you recommend to us? What should we be doing? Is this a good time to buy real estate or is it, should we hold off? I mean, I have to tell you, Patty, I, you know, that I wrote in my book, don't buy shoes, buy buildings. Yes. And I, my entire, um, not my entire, but let's say 80% of my strategy has been real estate. And I have had, I had the worst two years of my life in California with all the laws in California being against landlords I mean, I, during the pandemic, had my commercial buildings with very big uh, companies who didn't pay. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, I got them to pay. But I went through, like, you know, the same way that your husband lost everything uh, with, the, with, with the stocks. I didn't lose everything because obviously assets, you never lose the asset if you can hold on. But I warned women because I said, if I had not had the carrying costs... My carrying costs were huge for the number of buildings I own. If I didn't, if I wasn't a frugal, like your mom told you, uh, I would have lost everything and I didn't. But it, I'm not going to lie. It was a scary couple of years. So let's talk a little bit about real estate and what you think and what you've seen. You know better than everybody. You've seen all the business flow. 
Why I know the residential side probably more than the commercial side. We've been impacted by the commercial side as well. The only thing is, is that we're owner occupants of most of our commercial assets. So, you know, we're paying ourselves the rent and we do pay ourselves on time. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's strategy around tax savings, around owning and running your own company out of your own building. I actually advocate for that a lot. If you have a mid-sized company, buy your own building and rent and pay you the rent, right? As far as residential real estate goes, you know, the past pretty much dictates the future. If you look at the trajectory of values over, you know, the last 50 years, it's a straight, it might maybe have hiccuped a couple of times and it's gone down, but it continually goes up. So you only lose your real estate asset if you sell it. So really the people that come to me are like, well, I'm getting a divorce, you know, and they have to sell or death in a family or something. But the long-term value of owning a home in this country has done nothing but go up, but it might go down while you're living in your asset. Don't get worried because the next time the market turns around, it'll go up. In this country, there are not enough homes for the demand of buyers. We have very, very low inventory still today. I'm not seeing property values die because of these interest rates. I have seen it slowed in certain markets, but it's a long-term play, just like any investment. Now people are like, well, they buy houses and then in mark like hot markets, like COVID market, they buy houses and then they're flipping them every few months for profit. That's a game. That's I live in Las Vegas. That's gambling. I don't really do that. I have been lucky and bought property that I had to sell and make a, a profit. But my strategy has never been a buy and flip. So that's gambling. And, and people do win. But I'm a long-term holder of real estate. And, 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 and it's going to continue to go up. The demand for home ownership is super high. Even today, Latinos and African-Americans are trying to get into homes at the same rate they have for the last decade. They, the desire to have a piece of this country is super, super strong, even at But this what time. about the rental property? Like, how about like, you know, in California, just to give an example, when the laws are against the landlord, do you feel like it's not a good time to rent in these kind of <laughs> states or what? Well, I moved out of California three years ago. Um, so I'm not a big fan of, of the way that state's being run. I mean, this country is great because of business and people who own businesses and offer jobs and opportunities. And so when a state works against business owners and or landlords, that doesn't work for me. So we move. So I'm highly against the way that state's being run. And it's not even a political thing. I don't really care about policies. I am a business owner and I know how to run a business. And that state is arguably one of the biggest countries in the world. That state alone is yep. so... Rich with opportunity and it's being run so poorly. So no, there is everything in life and everything in business has to be a win-win, a win for the consumer and a win for the business. I mean, unless you're a nonprofit, a, a, a business has to profit or we can't offer jobs. So um, I, I don't, I don't know on a statement. I would be a, I would be a hold there. I would be a hold. Right. And by the way, that's where I'm at. So let me ask you a question. Are you seeing any trends in particular states or cities where people, where the laws are good and where people are investing right now? I know Nevada, where you are, right? Las Vegas, Texas, Florida, but any others? You know, I think affordability is a big thing. And especially in the Latino market, they'll travel anywhere to buy a house and work. It's if there's a job and there's a will will come like Iowa. When my dad married my mom years ago and he took her home, they asked him what a Mexican was. So um, now if you look at the population of Hispanics in Iowa, it's 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 growing. It's a really great opportunity because you can buy a home still in Iowa and there's work. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think anywhere there's opportunity and the affordability factor falls in young families are moving from California to Texas at almost 200 families a day. Let me ask you another question. In terms of your business, I know you're the largest Hispanic mortgage company in the country, but you're not marginalized to only do loans to Latinos. You do them for everybody. Yeah. But I know you've made a very big effort to fund minority ownership and you have funded so many minorities and gotten them funded. I know, you know, in the past there were, there have been so many inequities and in how minorities could qualify for loans. How have you gotten around that to help so many people get their first loan? I've built a self 
a sales force that mirrors the communities we serve. So I have a large percentage of African-Americans and Latinos that work for me. And it sounds so organic, but if we're in the communities that we're serving, the consumer will see themselves in us. And being in a, a minority and a woman owner, I mean, if you look at the top 100 mortgage companies in America, um, there might be president, female presidents, or maybe female appointed CEOs, but I'm one of the only self-founded companies. So we're still a, a minority in our businesses um, but it's a concentrated effort. It was a passion again, that I found in 1994 when I realized that I spoke pretty good Spanish. And so I wasn't doing a lot of business because it was a high interest rate market in 1994 and the market turned off really quickly. But yet in the town next to me in Santa Ana, California, those people were still buying and they were all Latinos. So I'm like, oh, well, I speak Spanish, so I'm going to go ask those realtors for loans. So that was how I got a passion for serving the Hispanic market. And so I know how to underwrite their credit. I understand cultural nuances in both African-American communities and Hispanic communities, because we tend to have our own ways of saving and spending in our communities that are not understood with the mainstream, which has been traditionally whitewashed, right? They underwrite the white man's credit. And so Latinos don't typically save like the white traditional man in America. And I understand that. And I've worked with the government face to face in order for them to understand that our just because we have cultural nuances doesn't mean that we don't pay our bills. We just pay, we just save differently, right? We save. That's right. We're very cash rich, believe it or not. We are low moderate, but the ones that are middle class to high class Latins in this country generally have a good sizable bank account with liquidity. Hence, probably right. why you, probably why you were fine during COVID. That's but right. I don't, I I don't spend what I don't have. Right. It's almost equal, equal. Well, I don't think people realize that. And again, this is where I think mainstream banks fail us is they don't understand that you come from whether you're Latino, Asian, whatever, you come from countries where there was socialism or communism and you had to keep the money, you know, under the under the mattress because the banks would fail. And so you come to this country and you don't follow the trajectory yes. of finance that people have here where they're very low liquid and everything's invested and you have assets. And so most people don't fund us when in fact we have the money to pay for everything and we would never buy a house and then lose a house. So they don't really get that. And so they're missing big opportunities that you've taken advantage of. Yes, yes. It is a business. It's my passion and I love it. But it's also, you know, something that I understand and I lived. So, um, yeah, it's a great business opportunity. All great corporations in this in the entire United States are going to have to tap into the Latino market if they want to continue to thrive because we're such an emerging population and we want to see ourselves in the corporations or in the products that we're buying. Heidi, can you explain to people how when you buy buildings, uh, residential or or, or a commercial, the tax benefits of being a real estate owner that I don't think people comprehend to the degree that we really need to, because it is a game changer that you don't get when you buy stocks, for instance. Yeah. So um, I'm very lucky that my husband takes care of our, all our tax situations as we have many, 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 because every single building has its own LLC. LLC. So yeah, definite benefits. I think um, I know that you're going to dive in and get us a book around uh, preparing <laughs> and understanding taxes. You don't know how many women, including myself, are like, you know, it's something we don't understand. The basics of taxation in this country should be taught in high school. Right. And so I'm in my business, it's a goal in my business school, Vanguard University, Southern California, in my business school, there will be financial literacy, tax, tax, you know, and just understanding how to navigate this country and the, and, and it's the way we tax is so important. In real estate, you can move the benefits of taxation amongst different years, like when maybe we don't do as well. <laughs> so, um, right. you know, right now the mortgage business is not great. It's not right. great, um, but because we've we've played so sustainably, we're doing really great. We're actually growing in a market that everybody else is consolidating. We're taking advantage of, of being down, but this has taken many years of being just very, very, very smart with the way that we spend our money. I mean, we Rick and I figured out, I think it was last year, Rick told me, we've kept 90% of all profits 
in the company in the last 20 years. So just because we did well, we were not pulling out money and flying private. In fact, the first time I flew private in my entire career, which is going to be almost 43 years, was three years ago. The yeah, first so you, time. You guys, you guys did, played it, played it like we all do. Like, yes, you know, not crazy. Okay, I want to end this beautiful conversation with the best story of all, which is I saw the video of you surprising your mother. So your mother and your grandmother might've thought you were frugal then, but they don't think so anymore. Tell us the big surprise you gave your mother and what it did for her after she had told you so many years before, Tú me vas a comprar una casa, your grandma. you are going to buy me a house. Tell, tell what you did. Yeah. So it was always a dream for my, for me to build a house, like exactly the way my mom wanted it. So when, you know, my parents lived in the same home for, for 35 years before I surprised them with a brand new build in Newport Beach, California. And um, she did not know it was happening. And my brother was the contractor and I funded the whole thing. And um, on her birthday, five years ago, we invited her to go see this house that my brother built. I go, oh my gosh, you should see this house Jimmy built in Newport Beach. She goes, oh, sure, let's go see it before we go to dinner. So the whole family was there and she walked in and we said, we all surprised her with a brand new house. And um, it was close to me then. I, I moved since, but I was planning my life and me taking care of my mom. I wanted her close to me logistically. So that's why I surprised her with that house in Newport Beach. But Again, it was my dream. So I made it happen. Like it was always something I thought about since I was a little girl. And I just had, I've been blessed. And I actually, I tell people this in the financial crises in 2008, when I thought I was going to lose my company, we're going to lose everything, right? Every mortgage company was closing down. I would like think about it and pray at night and just kind of be like, oh, please, God, just leave me enough so I can take care of my family. And that's happened. So I've been well, your, really your mother's reaction when you bought her that house, it was just unbelievable. It made me cry so much because I know, I, I know that that's our dream for all of us. So Patty, leave us with one thought. When you go through a bad thing, like the 2008 crisis in these, in your business or in, or in life, it could be cancer in your family, whatever. How did you, how did you both deal with all of that? And how do you deal with it? Because we know life, I tell everybody, I tell my son every day, not every year is a happy year. Listen, I told you I moved to Miami because my mom got sick. Not every year is a good year. You have to just get through it. Get, and the only way through it is through it. Yes. So yes, I do have very painful periods in my life. I'm actually in, enduring one right now. And I tell everybody this, life is so great. And so hard <laughs> and no in between for me. So I think it's inevitable. We're all going to deal with loss. We're all going to deal with hiccups. Um, but Rick and I, you know, I, I don't know who quote the quote. I think it was Maya Angelou, but this too shall pass. Life takes care of everything. It just continues to flow regardless if you're having a great day or a bad day. Life, just the hours keep going. The clock keeps ticking and it's going to pass. So just build your tribe and hold tight to your loved ones and enjoy the ride. Thank you so much, Patty. I'm honored to be around you and I am so happy that we're friends and I can't wait for everybody to know you and read your book. Ah, you're so great. Well, thank you for being my mentor. Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nellie Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.